Some say that alongside this see-it-to-believe-it world is the shadowy realm of the supernatural. Sometimes the residents of that dimension touch us, and in one moment, our lives are changed forever. America's Lady of Supernatural Thrillers, Mary Ann Pohl, is your real ghost chatter host. On this podcast, you'll hear stories by real people who have seen real ghosts. Gordon tells us about an unwelcome encounter with his dead father-in-law, and Lori tells us about a dead logger who looked for his wife and daughter for years after his death until she helped him find peace. Then there's Victoria, who shares her story of a long-dead pig, Edna June, who still watches over her ranch. Did you know a cafe in Anchorage, Alaska is haunted by the ghost of a woman who was blown to bits by a hired hitman? Once in a while, Mary Ann will podcast a tale taken from the genre she loves best, the supernatural. These are just a few of the stories you will hear, and these stories just keep coming. Welcome to today's Real Ghost Chatter episode. America's Lady of Supernatural Thrillers, a charter member of Author Masterminds, and your host on Real Ghost Chatter. If you are enjoying Raven's Cove and would like a signed copy, you can purchase it or any other of the books in the Iconoclast series at www.maryannpoll.com. You can also purchase them at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or other places where good books are sold. Here's the next few chapters from Raven's Cove. If you're at home, grab your favorite drink and settle into your favorite listening spot. If you're on the road, stay safe. In either event, enjoy. Chapter 18, Black Cat. Ken caught up with Cat as she turned onto the street behind Grandma's house. May I walk with you? Not you too, FBI. I can take care of myself, you know. Cat picked up her pace an outward expression of her need to get away from the confusion he stirred up every time she looked at him. Ken quickened to come alongside her, which put him on a direct collision with a bike rider. The speed demon steered his bike to avoid Cat, but didn't have time to do the same for Ken. Ken, concentrating on matching his pace to Cat's, was unaware of the impending accident. On your left, the bicyclist shouted. Ken glanced up, shot sideways, tripped over a small rock and landed on his backside. The bike rider whizzed by and became a speck on the horizon in moments. Cat laughed so hard tears came to her eyes. Once she could get her breath, she offered a hand. Ken took it, but instead of pulling himself up, he pulled her down. She landed square on his stomach. Oomph, sorry, did not work out quite like I had planned, but her reaction was exactly what he hoped for. Those flashing green eyes were back. She made a fist and punched him square in the chest as she stood. Ouch. He rubbed the spot to take some of the sting out of it. You're strong for a girl. Cat gave a frustrated huff and took off. By the time he could breathe again, Cat was halfway down the street. Ken caught up with her. She made it a point to ignore him for the 20 minutes it took to walk her home. The silence made it seem like an eternity passed before he got her to her destination. Once they arrived, Ken insisted he check the house before she went inside. Oh, for heaven's sake, 
Cat patted her pockets to find her key. She wanted to placate this guy and get some time for herself. While he waited, Ken stood on the deck, back turned to Cat's door, taking in the awe-inspiring view. The muddy gray inlet tossed whitecaps toward the shore at an alarming rate. The breeze was gentle here, yet tinged with possible peril, evidenced by the gale-force winds whipping the distant waves into a frenzy. An active volcano flanked by pointed, inhospitable mountains sent puffs of steam upward. The knowledge of an imminent explosion underlined the threat of a serial killer on the loose in this off-the-map town. Ken lived for danger, and Raven's Cove contained dangers he had never known or thought about growing up in Iowa. He became an FBI agent because he loved the chase and winning. Finding a serial killer was adrenaline producing. He did not doubt he would win the battle with a human being. But the possibility of earthquakes, volcanoes erupting, not to mention the moose and bear were numerous and could trample or devour one, really spoke to Ken. This place felt more like home than anywhere he had been on earth. As a bonus, Cat was the most electrifying woman he had ever met. His feelings were growing stronger for her and the raw beauty of this place. I knew about earthquakes and volcanoes when I arrived, but living in Anchorage, the idea of such disasters is distant at best. This place shouted danger. A sharp pain brought him back to reality. Ken looked to the source. A black, short-haired cat, as green-eyed as its master, attacked his legs, claws out as if scaling a tree. What the? Ken shook his leg in a rapid motion, attempting to shake off the psychotic cat. The homicidal screeched and dug in deeper, seeming to enjoy the ride. Blast it! I'm not going to have to shoot this thing, I hope, Ken's thought. Cat tilted her head, confused at B.C.'s more than normal violent reaction. Stop moving. She bent down and unhooked each claw. Ken counted 16 tugs before he was finally free. BC's tail swished back and forth. He glared into Ken's eyes. A low growl told Ken, if BC had anything to do with it, more attacks were coming. Told you I was fine. She picked up BC and dropped him inside her cabin and slammed the door. You'd better go now. BC honored you with one of his more delicate warnings. Ken pulled Cat close, kissed her hard on the mouth, released her, and headed for the steps. He looked back over his shoulder. Cat stood wide-eyed, staring toward the water. He's either courageous or a fool, she thought. No man ever risked her anger by kissing her without permission, and no man stayed on her porch or crossed her threshold, for that matter, since B.C. took up residence. You pull a stunt like that again, FBI, and I'll... You'll what? I don't know, but you'll be more than sorry. Ken grinned and said, noted. I'll be here to get you at 5.15. Cat inhaled deeply and let out a slow, shaky breath. If you aren't here by 5.15, I won't be here at 5.16. She turned, walked inside, and slammed the door. Chapter 19, Prayers and Plots. Ken arrived at 5.10, allowing for differences in clocks. He knocked and sidestepped the second BC attack. He grabbed the cat in one arm, pulling just hard enough on the nape of his neck, like a mother cat carries its kittens, to stop the biting and clawing in its tracks. Subdued, B.C. lay still, except for the swishing tail. Enough, Cat. Now off with you. Ken dropped B.C. ahead of him into the cabin to give himself a head start if the cat decided to come at him again. Cat favored Ken with a look bordering on respect. No one knows how to subdue B.C. but me. She stepped out the door, closed, and locked it. Darn. She unlocked the door, swept B.C. into a kennel before he could protest, and grabbed the overnight bag. Balancing the bag and B.C., Cat squeezed through the door and kicked it shut. 
Cat! Bart's voice came from the gravel path doubling for a driveway. Cat and Ken turned to watch his stocky frame come up the hill to her lawn. Where are you off to? His eyes settled in challenge on Ken's face. Possibly a friend or not, this guy has trouble where Cat's concerned, he thought. Ken returned to the glare. We're going to get Grandma and take her to church. Bart turned surprised eyes to Cat. Since when do you go to church, especially the Holy Roland one? Since Grandma wouldn't take no for an answer and was going to go by herself after dark, no choice. Stubborn, we do come by it rightly now, don't we? He chuckled. We? Ken asked. Well, not because this is any of your business either, FBI, but we're related. This man is not just our town's fine sheriff, he is also my first cousin. Relief and understanding flooded Ken. He mistook family protectiveness for male competition. I'll walk with you. That's not necessary. One escort is more than enough, Cat answered. Probably right, kitty cat. But we got the autopsy results and some information on the John Doe from yesterday. I want to go over them with Melbourne. Ken lost interest in the family relationship and turned his full attention to Bart, listening. Seems our John Doe is, or was, a Mr. Theodore Dank, a homeless man residing in and around Anchorage. Has a record for panhandling, petty theft, nothing big. Don't know what brought him this way, but I'm assuming he was looking for a warmer climate to spend the winter. The autopsy results were a little odd. The black stuff coming from his eyes was sulfurous in nature. The purple is some kind of plant or herb not known to Raven's Cove or even Alaska from what the M.E. said. He could have died from a variety of things, most of which seemed to occur at the same time. Among them, he had a heart attack and both lungs were punctured by broken ribs. Makes sense. But the medical examiner could not explain the absence of skin or blood from the body. They are still looking for a reason. No immediate signs of burning or bloodletting. They are thinking acid was used to remove the skin. They'll get back to us. They stopped at Grandma Bricken's house. You look beautiful, Bart said. Grandma Bricken beamed, then looked at the three young people standing on her porch. My escort has increased, I see. Kat deposited BC and her bag in the entry. With the knowledge of a frequent visitor, she grabbed a white ceramic bowl from the upper cabinet in the kitchen, filled it with water, and set it on the floor. There, BC, you're set till we get back. Grandma Bricken's warm eyes followed Kat throughout the routine. Her granddaughter's depth of love extended well beyond family to all she felt needed her. An admirable trait, although one which got Kat hurt on more than one occasion. Well, let's be off then. The quartet arrived at the small house-turned-church well after dark. It was a little before six. Floor lamps and some yellow-tinted bulbs in the ceiling fixtures gave the place a warm glow. The small room smelled of fresh paint. Grandma joined her longtime friends at the front of the building. Cat surveyed the room and its occupants. There were new faces, too, at least ones Cat did not see when she accidentally showed up at one of her Graham's mini home Bible studies. If there were 20 people, though, she'd be surprised. Still, the peace and lightness in this building made up for the sparse gathering. A feeling of security, of protection, overtook her senses. Paul Lucas stood on the low, hand-built stage and smiled out to his flock. He took hold of a small wooden box in front of him. As you know, my friends, our town is under attack. Two people have lost their lives in just as many days. It is urgent we pray for our town and the safety of its residents. The Lord has told us where two or more gather in his name, he will be among us. And he has promised to answer our cries. Let us cry out to him, he is our salvation. A different type of meeting took place at the Congregational Alliance. 
a combined memorial service for Miggy Salisto and pep talk by Reverend Plotno. Reverend Plotno considered it time to confront and dissemble the congregation of Paul Lucas. He could not do it himself, but he was sure some of his people would want to. All he needed to do was push them in the right direction. Earlier, he insisted Anita go to Lucas's church and do some snooping. She was peeved, but like a good servant, went anyway. I'm surprised I missed my most adoring fan, he mumbled. He wanted to see her love-struck eyes while he delivered his fiery and enlightening speech. He comforted himself knowing he would catch up with her in private later. My friends, we have lost a dear brother. This, as you all know, is the second murder in two days. There is one, they say, who is jailed and suspected of these horrific crimes. And do you know where he was before he went to jail? Visiting Paul Lucas. The congregation gasped in unison. We have known, and I've told you for a long time, Lucas's assembly is bad for Raven's Cove. We must do something to shut it down. Any one of you could be next. The threat of bodily harm primed them. I am praying, and ask you pray, for the church's destruction, so no more harm will come to this town. We are in peril, I feel it. He paused, so his next statement would have its desired effect. Traumatus was standing behind Plotno, whispering into his puppet's ear. He left his position at the door, knowing this was where he needed to be right now, no matter what a clonoclast said. Because he left his post, he did not notice Uriel slip into a pew in the back. My guide has told me this, Plotno shouted. The rumble of belief affirmed his ploy worked. Uriel left and flew to the man who occupied the town's lone jail cell to warn him. Sheriff Bart left the service at Paul Lucas's church, puzzled at the hatred felt for this man by most all of the town, at least those who attended the Congregational Alliance. He seems harmless enough, Bart shook his head. I'll never understand people. Bart arrived at the office. Josiah sat on the edge of his bed, head bent and deep in thought. Here's the Bible you requested. Bart handed it through the bars. Thanks so much, Josiah gave an appreciative smile. Bart made sure Josiah had water and blankets for the long night ahead and headed out the door and onto the street. A large black lump caught his attention. Who the heck left their trash in the street? Some in this town can't seem to get with the program. I'll have to issue another warning in the morning. He walked toward the trash to pick it up and throw it in one of the cans behind the building. But it wasn't trash. It was a flock of ravens, dead in a heap, right outside the trash bin, the adult store. He leaned over and touched one, still warm. Who would do such a thing? Maybe the murderer, he answered himself. But if my prime suspect is in jail, my theory doesn't hold water. Not the murderer, Bart said aloud. Bart headed back to the office for trash bags, cleaned up the carcasses, and an hour after he planned to, started for home. The Northern twins were taking a walk on the path leading to Raven's Ravine. Those ravens won't be making any noise or stealing our food anymore, Jonathan said. There'll be more of them. Then we'll do it again. It's a community service, right? I guess so. Joseph looked down, saw a pretty arrowhead, and snatched it up, hoping Jonathan didn't notice. Let me see. Joseph opened his hand. The pretty thing was pulsing in colors. I want to see. No. They got into one of their regular fights, and before they knew it, tumbled into Raven's Ravine. A victorious growl resounded throughout the surrounding countryside. Every canine, Every wolf howled. Blood-red smoke streamed upward out of the ravine. 
Josiah's head shot up from his Bible. The fourth victim has been taken. How? There should be just one a night. Only one left then. Only one day before Iconoclast is released to destroy Raven's Cove and its people. God help them and God help me, he prayed. Cat, Ken, and Grandma Bricken stopped when they heard the rising chorus of canine voices. Grandma's spirit became troubled. I'm not sure what has happened, but it's something awful. The house are a sign of unrest and proceed imminent destruction. As soon as Grandma Bricken opened the door, B.C. launched himself off the entry hall table. He landed in Ken's arms. Grandma turned the lights on. What a sight. She couldn't help but smile, even knowing a supreme evil was present in her town and wanting to destroy it. There sat B.C., curled up and holding tight to Ken's right arm, looking like a hairy football with claws. And he showed no signs of letting go. What the heck? Ken remembered Grandma's earlier warning about foul language. B.C.'s green eyes were as large as saucers, trumped only by the size of his tail, which was returning to its normal size as he relaxed. He cuddled deeper into Ken's arms. Without giving it a thought, Ken encircled B.C. with the other arm, comforting the very being who tried to maim him for life a few hours earlier. Give him to me, Cat said and reached for B.C. Black Cat left the safety of Ken's arms for hers. His nose and eyes disappeared into the crook of her arm. I've never seen B.C. afraid of anything, Grandma said. Did you notice, concerned she was seeing things, Cat hesitated. Notice what? Ken asked. That weird red fog coming from the ravine? Her question got both Ken's and Grandma's attention. Yes, they answered in unison. Relieved she had not been imagining things, well, I'm still not saying the ravine legend is real, but the howling, the red fog, and a fearful B.C. has me wondering. I feel a need to talk to Mr. Josiah Williams. I've had a hard time convincing myself he acted alone, Ken responded. If he didn't commit the murders, he sure knows a lot about them. And how would he, unless he knew who committed them? The jail is locked up for the night, but I happen to have a key. Cat reached into her purse and produced it. Ken made a grab for it and missed. Not without me, FBI. Not waiting for permission, Cat slid an unhappy B.C. into her grandma's arms. You'll be safe with B.C. We'll be fine. You do what you need to do and do it fast. We have 24 hours to find a way to stop this thing. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to share it with others you think would also be interested. If you'd like to know more about me, go to maryannpoll.com and or authormasterminds.com forward slash M-A-R-Y dash A-N-N dash P-O-L-L. Until next time, may the wind always be at your back, the sun on your face, and the good Lord walk beside you.